Tonight, as we really start the introduction to Noah's flood, if you turn to Genesis chapter 7. As I've been saying for our whole journey here in the book of Genesis, you're forced to come to terms with the book of Genesis on its own merit. And on the merit of the text alone, what God says, how he says it, and whether you choose to believe it or not. And as I've said previously, one of the most important things you can glean from the book of Genesis is that God is truthful, and that God has spoken the truth since the beginning. Because if there is no beginning, if there isn't an in-the-beginning God, if there isn't a God that's outside of space and time, then that same God that's spoken those words is the one that's spoken the plan of salvation into our lives. And so you begin to have to pick and choose what you choose to believe. And so believers are forced into a situation of either believing the Genesis account and believing this great flood, or believing that God is deceptive, God isn't truthful, and that when God says that he destroyed the world by this incredible global cataclysm, that he didn't actually mean that, that somehow it's figurative. And when you begin to take the plain statements, which, by the way, I would point your attention to, God is going to take several chapters on this one particular event. If it's not meant to be taken literally, then why did he spend so much time describing the literal effects of it, describing the aftermath of it, and describing the condition of the world both before and after? And so I choose to believe that God meant what he said, said what he meant, and that the Genesis account of this flood of Noah is a real account of the history of the earth. And so as we look at it, we're going to spend some time, and tonight really is the introduction to it. Remember that God has spoken to Noah. He's going to spend... 120 years, more than a century, building the ark. And the reason that that piece of information is important to us is that if God were simply going to do something that had only a catastrophic event, that had a catastrophic event in mind, then he wouldn't have needed 120 years. The 120 years is there for mankind to repent, for mankind to change its course, for mankind to pick a different path. In essence, for grace to be visible. But man chooses not to heed the word of the Lord, and so God is going to bring the Mabul Mayim, that incredible catastrophic event that's happened only once. God said it would never happen again. And if it happened, we should be able to find the effects of it all over the globe. Now, we're going to embark on a study that will, I think, fairly categorically prove that not only was the earth at one point in time covered entirely by water. Uh, But in fact, God did what he said he was going to do. And in the process of doing that, he left us a record of it, which humanistic evolutionists have chosen to interpret as very long ages because of processes that we see today that happen very slowly. And so without the catastrophic event of the flood, You can interpret the things that we see as long ages of time, but with the catastrophism, 
I think we can clearly see and will clearly see uh, that the Lord did something that has never been done before and will never happen uh, again. So we'll pick up just actually four, four verses tonight as we set the stage for the last days of the old world, the world that was created that God is now going to, in essence, obliterate from the face of the earth, save Noah, a large ark with a number of animals on it, and eight people. And so let's pray and we'll dig into the word. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray tonight that you would speak to us, or that your word would be alive in these corroborating scientific facts, or these things that you can look at and we can see and touch, or these things that have been interpreted by evolutionary geologists and biologists over the last 150 years to try and make a case that you're unnecessary. Lord, we pray that you would show yourself strong, mighty, truthful. Lord, that you would give us your wisdom and discernment and knowledge so that we might know all things according to your plan for our lives. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis 7. And then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all of your household, because I have seen that you were righteous before me in this generation. And so God's plan was then and is now that mankind be righteous that we live lives that are pleasing to God. He gives them a tremendous amount of time to clear up the issue, which he had made obviously very clear. And you have to believe that if God's allowing 120 years for Noah to build the ark, that he's certainly going to be allowing Noah also the opportunity to preach the good news that anyone who will turn could come in. And so you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, male and his female, and two of each animals that are unclean, that are male and his female. And so the clean animals, those that would be used for sacrifice, uh, those, those that would be used uh, in those things which God had no doubt instructed Noah in to please him, uh, there's seven of those and then two of every kind of unclean animal. Also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. And he gives us a little insight there. Uses again a word that we would translate either into kind or into one of the major designations that we use to define animal life today. Kingdom, phylum, genus, order, species, one of those types of designations. But again, God doesn't need all of the diversity that we see today to continue the species of birds. And so undoubtedly a far fewer number than all of the species that are available on the face of the earth today. uh, For they would not be necessary. And as we've seen in our last couple of studies, the ark could have easily held all of these animals, uh, even today with the basic uh, number of animals that would be necessary to continue the species that we have even on the earth today. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, remember that this world is not like the world that we currently live in. Uh, There are a number of things missing. We'll get into those things as we dig into this particular event in its entirety Uh, But chief among them, God is going to put into place many of the things that we take for granted today in our world geologically. Uh, During our time and space in which we live now on this earth, we have volcanism, we have tectonic plate movement, we have fault block and fault lifting, we have all kinds of geologic pressures on the earth that I believe are a direct result of this catastrophic event. God brings them into play, but at this time, 
the world is a flatter place. The mountains have not lifted as we know them. Uh, most of the earth uh, would have been, been what we consider fairly flat. And so we, we are going to see those things come into existence as we go through the, the flood itself. But God's going to make it rain. So again, when we think about rain, we have to imagine uh, the type of rain that collects in areas that are much flatter than what we have now. Because we're used to runoff. We live in Southern California. We have mountain ranges that surround us. Uh, to the north of us, we have the Santa Monica Mountains, and to the east of us, the San Bernardino Mountains, and the San Jacinto Mountains, and the Cuyamaca Mountains. And so we have all of these uplifted areas that exist now. During this time, it's very likely that those mountains were uh, not in existence as we know them. And we'll look at some of the geologic evidence that seems to indicate that that's true. And we'll also look at some of the things that you would think would not exist unless the world uh, was covered at a point in time, almost in its entirety, by water. And so there is evidence to that effect. And so God is going to cause it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So God is, in essence, going to start over. But he's going to start over in a different way. He's not going to create, again, bara out of nothing. He's not going to do another ex nihilo creation where he speaks into existence something that doesn't exist. He is going to preserve what does exist. He's going to preserve that in the ark. And then he is, in essence, going to repopulate and replant the earth uh, with that which he's already created. And so the stage is now set. Noah's preaching, the, in essence, the message. There is an unbelievable urgency to the message that he's going to, to be given. And, and remember that it, it was said that Methuselah, in essence, when he dies, it shall come. And that it is the flood. And so everybody's looking at Methuselah, hoping the guy doesn't croak. And, and so there, there, here comes this incredible uh, deluge. Now for us, the flood of Noah raises all kinds of questions. I have Christians tell me, you know, I don't think it's really all that important. I have Christians tell me that they believe that God could have used evolution. We call those people theistic evolutionists. In other words, they believe that God somehow used evolution as a tool by which he works, which makes God both the author of death and destruction. He makes, it, makes God the author of chaos. And so there are all kinds of problems, there's all kinds of questions that come to our minds when we think about, did God actually do this? The other thing that we look at in our modern world today, uh, when we begin to look at especially the study of geology, is the evidence that we have before us is presumed by geologists to be the result of very slow processes that took place over tremendous periods of time. And with regard to the earth itself, Roughly 3.7 billion years is the current assigned age by evolutionary geologists. They look at the world and, in essence, extrapolate backwards. Say, these are the number of animals that we have. These are the fossils that exist. And so for that life to have begun as blue-green algae, prokaryotes, eukaryotes, these single-celled organisms, for them to have evolved into life as we know it, getting more complex with each stage, there has to be immense amounts of time. 
And the question becomes, is there actually proof for those immense amounts of time, or is there a tremendous amount of circular reasoning that's been used to try and take the data based on what we see today and extrapolate it back into some kind of prehistoric time frame? And that's actually what's happened. So the proof that supposedly exists actually doesn't exist at all, because nuclear decay rates really are only good if you extrapolate them out maybe 20,000 years or so. So no amount of biologic material can actually be carbon dated to millions and or billions of years. It simply can't be done. So what has happened is we take the geology, we look at the geology and we say, well, this is how much sand is normally deposited by a river over 100 years. This is how much a stalactite grows if it drips for a hundred years. And then the assumption is made that those processes must have been happening for very long periods of time based on things like the Grand Canyon, based on things like uplifted fault block mountains, things like the amount of sediment on the seafloor. And so if the basic assumption were true, and those processes had been happening over very long periods of time, you would find exactly what has been assumed. But if you interject into the data set, in other words, what you see, a massive catastrophic event whereby the entire surface of the earth is covered with water and stirred up so that every bit of the soil on the face of the earth is put in solution and suspension and then deposited all over the globe forming sedimentary rock, then you're going to mess with the evidence in that sense. And so God says, this is what I did. I destroyed the world by flood. So you can either believe God and you can look at the world and say, is there evidence for a global catastrophe having happened that left behind the evidence of a flood of this magnitude? Or did these things simply happen over millions, ultimately billions of years with regard to the earth itself? So you have to start somewhere. Someone who doesn't know the Lord starts with a whole bunch of time. Someone who does know the Lord should start with their Bible and say, God, what have you told us about this time? And so in that sense, there's been a war between Christianity and anti-Christianity. And notice what I said. It's really those that are against the fact that there might be a personal God who loves mankind, who may have done something like this for a very specific reason. You see, God has always wanted to have a personal relationship. We saw that in the very first two chapters of the book of Genesis, continued into the third. God's plan was to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, to be with Eve, to have close fellowship with them. But through sin, they decided that's not what they want. And God said, if that's what you want, I'll honor it. But God has been looking to restore that relationship. And so he's not going to allow man... Uh, to go on forever believing he does not exist, believing that he's insignificant, believing that he doesn't care or that he doesn't love. And so God 
draws attention. Anybody in the room had God draw your attention to something through a catastrophe to remind you of who he is? I have. This is one of those things on a global scale. This is beyond your personal life. This is God saying the totality of mankind has reached that place to where man is no longer looking for God. Man has no attention to the things of God. And so man, in essence, in its totality, needs a wake-up call, and God's going to give that wake-up call. The chief evidence for the lack of existence of God has been for the last 150 years or so what is purported to be the fossil record that exists on this earth. It's supposed to be the record of eons, hundreds of millions of years of deposited fossils, death, supposedly life transitioning from a simple form into a more complex form. That is what every last one of you, if you've been, whether high school or college, if you have been to college at all, you have been told that the evidence is that there is transitionary life forms that have been discovered somewhere or expected to be discovered that leads us to believe that at one point in time there was a common ancestor to all life and that common ancestor, in essence, is a blue-green algae. Is that actually what we find in the fossil record? And that's the question that is actually going to be before us as we look at Noah's flood. Is that really what we see? Or is there evidence of something else? I believe Noah's flood is of very great importance to us. You see, on one hand, geologists claim that this event could not have happened. And on the other hand, they believe that the earth has been struck by multiple meteors. A couple of asteroids. That one of those asteroid strikes is what likely led to the demise of the dinosaurs. So on one hand, geologists believe in catastrophic events. They just don't believe in this catastrophic event. They pick and choose which one they want to believe in. And so it isn't really that they don't believe in catastrophism. And in fact, when we look at the context of geology around the globe, there's evidence of all kinds of catastrophic events all over the face of the earth. It's just that when you believe this one, you have to come to the conclusion that perhaps the Bible is correct. And if the Bible is correct and it's a unified message that God has sent us from outside of space and time into our space and time domain, and it conveys a message that he is there and that he actually is in charge and that he actually wants to have a relationship with us, the, the information that it contains demands that we do something with it. And that's the part that they don't like. It leads to the conclusion you have to choose to either believe in God or not believe in God. Even secular geologists, scientists, will tell you that there has been massive catastrophism all over the face of the earth. But they sure don't like this story. They try and pretend that there's no evidence that it ever happened. And while no one was there, and I think it's important to remind ourselves 
that nobody was there at the beginning of the universe. No one certainly could have been at the beginning of what an astrophysicist would tell you would be the Big Bang. We're all looking at the same evidence now. Anyone who's alive today that seeks answers to these questions has to look at the same evidence. There is not a separate set of evidence for a believer to look at and a non-believer to look at. And so, can we find evidence of God allowing things to happen uh, that when you look at it, you go, wow, I see exactly how God could have done some of these things. And I'll give you one. It happened in 1980. Some of you were probably around. I remember uh, the situation very, very clearly. I was out actually bidding a couple of jobs in my construction company. Uh, I was in the field. And all of a sudden, this news flash came over the radio that Mount St. Helens had erupted. And when it erupted, uh, directly before it erupted, it looked like that. Mount St. Helens provided a backdrop for what we would call catastrophism. You're looking across Spirit Lake. You're looking at a mountain that's about 9,700 feet tall in that particular picture. And it is going to undergo the most violent volcanic eruption that's ever been recorded on the face of the earth. And it's going to do a few things that have never been done so far as we know before and have not been done since. And so as Mount St. Helens begins to erupt, it's going to destroy everything in its path for 17 miles. It will do that in 10 minutes. Uh, It will dam up the Tuttle River. That river will back up with water into Spirit Lake. It will down over 250 million trees. Uh, It will put 250 trillion tons of ash into the atmosphere, which will cover seven western states, some of them with five to six inches of ash. It will displace the top of the mountain. The top 1,300 feet will completely disappear. The next thousand feet below that will be altered so that on the northern flank, the northern eastern flank, uh, almost a half a mile of the mountain will completely disappear. That same picture that you saw in the beginning looked like that when it was done. Top of the mountain's gone. Spirit Lake is filled with those millions of logs. Ultimately, as the erosion and all those things begin to happen, Uh, It created a space uh, that no longer looked like it did, in essence, minutes before that event happened. What happened subsequently was this. Now bear in mind that all these things happened in real time. You could go there today, this is what you'll find. That is a canyon at the bottom that's a little more than a half a mile wide. It's over 180 feet deep. It has sedimentation in it that secular geologists, if they looked at it, would say is at least 330,000 years worth of erosion. Uh, It created spaces that, if they were left to natural processes as we know them today, uh, would have taken almost a half of a million years. And so God has at His disposal things that, even today... When we look at it, we would have to say a catastrophic event changes the data so that the normal processes that we see of erosion, 
depositation, sedimentation can actually be altered in the blink of an eye if you happen to control things like the magma that's underneath the earth's crust, the aquifers that are underneath the earth's crust, all of the water vapor that hangs in the atmosphere over our heads, so much so that by the time it gets done, uh, if you were to go there today and you did not know when Mount St. Helens blew up, uh, you would have to say, wow, this happened a very long time ago. By virtue of the layers of ash, the layers of sediment, the layers of pebbling, the layers of rock that have been laid down, the lahar flow that's out there, and all of the magma flow that washed down through that particular river valley. And so the reason I show that to you is this. That's what that mountain used to look like. Almost 9,700 feet at the summit. By the time you get done with it, you can see that clearly 2,000 feet at the top of the mountain was taken off. That is the largest landslide that's occurred so far as humankind knows that's ever been recorded. It moved over two square miles of soil in 11 seconds. So when we say, God can't do that, you have to look at things like this and say, well, he kind of gave us an evidence. He can do a lot of things that we don't see on a regular basis. Now imagine that he intended for us to learn a lesson from what he's going to do. Could God cause simultaneously volcanic eruptions and the groundwater that's beneath our feet to open up and pour out onto the surface? Absolutely. Could he cause the collapse of a vapor canopy over the earth? Yes, he could. Uh, we now have seen something like that. And by the way, when that volcanic eruption was done, that, that flow of the pyroclastic material traveled between 70 and 150 miles an hour, took 57 lives, destroyed 185 miles of highway, wiped out 57 bridges, all in a, really a blink of an eye. And, and God wasn't destroying the earth on that day. It was just a single volcanic eruption. So be careful about what you think God can't do when you think about what God has done in, here in the book of Genesis. So us as Christians, a lot of people will look at it and say, well, it's probably just a localized flood. I have a whole bunch of reasons why I believe that not only is the flood account accurate, I, I believe that it is supported by Scripture itself, and I believe it's the record of the awfulness of sin, if you will, but I think the biblical reasons are almost sufficient in and of themselves to understand that God was doing something very specific. You see, if you wanted to get humankind's attention and you wanted to make sure that mankind never went down a road again, I'm not sure there'd be a better way than to leave eight people alive inside of an ark with all those animals and then completely obliterate the face of the earth I'm pretty sure anyone who was alive after the flood would have looked at the world from a very tight worldview. This world is God's, and he can do anything he wants with it. We are God's, and he can do anything he wants with it. And it were not for his grace, he would have destroyed us with everyone else. 
And so I think they had a watershed moment, if you will, as that, as that flood occurred. I happen to be one of those people that believes in miracles. I believe that God continues to do them uh, on this scale. We do not see them every day. Uh, but when you look at the biblical reasons that, that I think the flood is not only reasonable, but is, the, is really the answer to the evidence, if you will, if you look at the earth uh, in a geologic sense, first and foremost comes from Jesus himself. There in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus speaking of the very last days, talking about the antediluvian population of the world at the time, uh, he is the one that says, and the flood, speaking of this event, took them all away. So Jesus himself believed in the flood of Noah. That rate's pretty high up there on the list of you might want to think about whether it's true or not. If Jesus said it is, that's a pretty good reason to believe that it is. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 Exactly the same thing, believed in this destructive event, uh, a hydraulic event. And when we talk about hydraulic, it means that there were the forces of liquid applied to material. That material was moved by that liquid moving. You all know it uh, in hydraulic cylinders. If you've ever watched a bulldozer or a backhoe or something work that has hydraulics on it and they're digging ditches, the reason that those cylinders move in and out is you apply pressure to a liquid that's inside of a cylinder and it causes the arm to move. The same is true with earth and water. The same is true when you squeeze water into a canyon and you cause it to flow. It causes hydraulic forces. Then you add to that the sediment that's mixed in it and you can cause massive destruction with just moving water, rocks, and soil. You can do the same thing with glaciers as they begin to move. They pick up rocks, glacial scouring, polishes granite, which is nearly as hard as diamonds. But the Apostle Peter believed in this because he's the one that said, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. And the words that he uses are very, very important because when he says the world, he, he's talking about Everything that was known to humanity he uses actually the Greek word cosmos. In other words, from a human perspective, everything was destroyed. He wasn't just talking about this little area where Noah lived. He was talking about the earth itself. Everything that could be related to as the surface of the earth was overflowed. And when he uses the word overflowed, he's using not just a, a localized, there was a little bit of water, or he went down to a creek bottom and it overflowed its banks. He's talking about the cosmos, the world was overflowed with water. So Peter, very descriptively, says that the world was overflowed with water. And then he uses a word that is perish, which means it's destroyed in its entirety. In other words, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. We've just seen some recent flooding here in Southern California up in Santa Barbara. You've seen any pictures of those mud flows and you've heard any of the accounts of the people that were trapped in those mud flows. It happened instantaneously. People stepped out in their front yard, could not hear it coming. All of a sudden they hear the water, the rocks, the trees, and boom, their house is now down in the bottom of the canyon. Now imagine that on a global scale, because remember God says he's going to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Now, we've had some pretty good rainstorms in my lifetime. I was alive in the 1968 rainstorms here in Southern California, the record year. Uh, I remember wandering around Southern California. I remember because I lived in San Diego County, the Tijuana River, which normally is 50 to 100 feet wide at the very most and about that deep most of the time, uh, at one point in time was over a mile wide. It rained for five days. And it rained locally for five days. Uh, I can't even imagine what it would be like if the skies opened up and it poured buckets like we just had. Uh, we, we were up on the, on the mountain during the uh, 2008 flooding. At 2000, you may have remembered, we lost 25 kids in the Waterman Canyon. Instantaneously, a flow of rock and mud completely obliterated a camp down in the bottom of Waterman Canyon. Water can do some pretty crazy things when it gets moving. Any of you have been ever out in heavy surf, now you realize that's not something to mess with. Now imagine that the whole earth is turning with that kind of power. Basically what Peter and Jesus are saying is, yep, that's what God did. The evidence here in Genesis chapter 7, uh, and as we get into chapter 8, uh, we're going to see that the Lord is actually giving us a picture of what he was going to do. And he's reminding us how he's going to do it. We're going to see ultimately that the Ark of Noah will rest on uh, the mountains of Ararat or Mount Ararat, which is in modern day Turkey. It's a little less than 17,000 feet high. And people say, well, you know, uh, well, all the people could have gone to the mountain peaks. If you did this today, and this is an important scientific fact, less than one-tenth of one percent of the Earth's surface is covered by mountains that are over 17,000 feet high. So it's a very tiny little bit of the Earth's surface that is even that tall. Now imagine that almost all of them currently today are located either in the Himalayas or the Andes in South America. Uh, there's not a lot of places you can go when God starts making it rain. The other thing is, is the water is going to pile up fairly quickly so they ultimately would not have been able to escape this. And if they had, how many people can live with no food at an altitude of 17,000 feet for a year? It's not going to happen. So God was very clearly doing something that was going to accomplish the intended purpose. There are also some scientific reasons that I believe the flood of Noah is a legitimate way to look at the evidence before us. Almost without exception, all of the tallest mountain ranges on the face of the earth have somewhere near their summits sedimentary rock. That is rock that's laid down in layers by depositation, siltation. In other words, there's some form of water that's flowed. There's sand, gravel, tiny bits of sediment, was picked up in that water. You can do this experiment at home. Put a cup of dirt inside of water, slosh it around, and leave it sit. It will settle into layers with the various heaviest things landing first, followed by the lightest things last, until the water basically clears up. Then add to that immense pressure from the weight of the sediment itself, and you will begin to get things like limestone and shale sometime the, the world almost assuredly had to be underwater 
because we can see the evidence of those things in the very highest spots of all the mountain ranges on the face of the earth. And while it's not in its entirety, all of every mountain has sedimentary rock. There are some that are purely igneous. In other words, made by volcanism. Almost every range has some portions of it that are at the highest altitudes that are sedimentary. It's a piece of scientific evidence. Secondarily, almost 87% of the crust of the earth, that's 87% of the entire crust of the earth, is made up of sedimentary rocks. That means that those rocks were laid down over periods of time by flooding, by water stirred up sediment, and then compacted. So wherever you have conglomerates, that's rocks with sediment, or whether you have limestone, that's generally something that would be related to uh, seafloor mud, those types of things. Uh, marble, all those kind of rocks. Those are all, those are all reasons to believe uh, that the earth was covered at some point in time by water. The other thing that when I look at the geologic column, what it's, what's called the ge- geologic column, people often say, well, you know, they've dated these things to such and such an age. It's important to understand how that dating occurs. Because fossils are used to date the rock, and the rock is used to date the fossils. In other words, circular reasoning is used. Because you cannot date the fossils to hundreds of millions of years old. That's not possible. So you date the fossils relative to the rock that's in it, and then the rock becomes the age of the fossils and vice versa. That's how it actually occurs. So what gets established is an index fossil. In other words, when you find a certain fossil in a certain layer of rock, then the rock is that age, no matter where it is on the face of the earth. So in the case of the Cambrian period, which is between 485 million years ago and 540 million years ago, in the case of that age, where this incredible profusion of fossils popped into existence, every major phylum except for one came into existence during that period of time, the index fossil for that period was the tribolite. The little tiny guy, and I'll show you a picture of one in a moment. So when you find a tribolite, you go, Ah, that's Cambrian rock. There are some serious issues. Really serious issues. Because we now have found almost every major index fossil, either the animal itself or a very close living relative that has not evolved still alive on the face of the earth. And so you have a problem because the evolutionary assumption is over very long periods of time, very simple organisms or vastly more simple organisms become more complex organisms. Hackle's tree of life, Darwin's monkey to man theory. And so the only way that works is if there is consistent change over time. That's the only way that can happen. So you have to have blue-green algae changing into multicellular organisms, into simple, possibly insects, worms, millipedes, those types of things, into more complex insects, ultimately into reptiles, into birds, into mammals, into man. 
The whole theory is based on that process. So if you can go all the way back to the beginning and you can find blue-green algae and that blue-green algae is exactly the same as the blue-green algae we have today, then you kind of have a functional problem. Do things actually evolve or do they not evolve? And if they evolve, do they evolve all the time or only when you say they do? So when you look at these fossils, you have to explain away some things that are pretty clear to the average person. Top slide, colocanth fossil. The reason that colocanth is pretty, is, you know, one of those things that you want to look at and you go, oh, that's a, that's a pretty old fossil. Supposedly 300 million years old. That one's from the Indian Ocean. Less than 10 years ago. So is the colocanth the index fossil for the Ordovician period, or is it just another fish that's in the Indian Ocean alive today? Dragonflies that swim on your pond or in your pool. Those are fossilized ones. The one at the top, you can find those around your house. They look amazingly completely unevolved, don't they? And yet the ones on the bottom are supposed to be 150 million years old. And the one at the top is last week's breakfast for probably some bird in your neighborhood. This is almost endless. Top is a 250 million year old Tuatara fossil. The bottom is a live one from New Zealand. Exactly the same skeletal structure, exactly the same size, exactly the same skin, molecularly the same bone structure. So is it really that poor of an evolver? Ferns are the same thing. You might have those in your backyard or they might be 250 million years old. Same is true for that frog. Is it 180 million years old? Or was it lunch for a really fat bass last week? And again, I don't mean to mock. These are questions you need to ask. Because these things are all index fossils for the fossil record. So when you find these fossils, that's how you determine how old that rock is. So if every one of those animals is actually still alive on the face of the earth... You've got a serious problem with dating rock by finding fossils, don't you? Because the whole principle of evolution is slow change over a whole bunch of time. This is no change over a whole bunch of time. As I said, the tribalite. That fossil is supposed to be between 485 and 540 million years old. I actually have one of these. They're so common that you can buy them in almost any gem and mineral store. You, you can get them, uh, the one that I have, I think I paid $45 for. Because they're found by the hundreds of millions on the face of the earth. The real problem is, is they're still alive. 
in the Indian Ocean. So when someone comes to you and they say, well, you know, we know that these rocks are 500 million years old, and you ask them why, what they're going to tell you is, we've dated it because of the fossils that are in it. So you can just ask them, so are those fossils like the ones that are still alive, or are those fossils like the ones that didn't evolve? Because that's the actual truth. The truth is they still exist exactly the same as they were supposedly almost half a billion years ago. Now, if you take all of this and you begin to actually boil it down, you're going to find the same thing is true in the fossil record all over the globe for about 84% of all insect families. So we're not talking about a tiny little bit of some insects are exactly the same as the ones in the fossil record. 84% of all insects alive today have a representative that looks exactly the same in the fossil record. So could it be that maybe we're not separated from those ancient ancestors by hundreds of millions of years, but maybe by thousands of years instead? And God took the evidence and turned it upside down by covering the entire earth with water and sand and rocks and sediment and dead trees and logs and animals. And oh, by the way, the the animals that would end up at the top of the fossil record are exactly the ones that you would think would end up at the top of the fossil record. The ones with the largest body masses, the ones with the smallest would go down first, the ones with the largest would float longest. And so what do you find in the fossil record? You find all of the largest ones last, and you find all of the smallest ones first. That's why that little tiny tribalite is supposed to be the oldest of all of the fossils in the Cambrian period. They're dinky. They sink quickly. They're extremely dense. They're almost like a piece of bone when they're alive. And so when you look at the entire record, you're going to find it almost every modern amphibian, Nearly every modern mammal is represented by a representative inside of a single layer of rock that's called the Cambrian layer. And so this incredible profusion of fossils that's found there represents almost every form of life that we have on the face of the earth today. So are they 485 million years old? Are they 540 million years old? Or are they thousands of years old? because we still have them alive, almost exactly as they exist in the fossil record. You see, what evolutionary geologists focus in on is the handful of representations of things that are different than what we see today. As it currently stands today, that's 11 fossils. It's 11. 11 unaccounted for animals that we can't assign to a specific class or phylum. And that's largely because we only find pieces of them or we find an incomplete representation. So what's the evidence actually show? It's so confusing to even evolutionary geologists that guys like the late, great Stephen Jay Gould said things like this. He was writing on this particular thing. 
because he took it so far as to look at bacteria. And he said, and I quote, the most salient feature of life has been its stability, especially in its bacterial mode. From the beginning of the fossil record until today, with little doubt, and well into the future time, so long as the earth endures, it has looked the same. So, did it evolve or did it not evolve? Did blue-green algae become frogs, butterflies, moths, or did it remain blue-green algae? He went on to say that one of the most crucial and enigmatic episodes in the history of life is that nearly all animal phyla made their first appearance in the fossil record simultaneously. In an interval, interval of less than 5,000 years, or 5 million years, between 525 and 540 million years ago. You realize what he's saying? He's basically saying Darwinian evolution did not happen. So the reason people don't believe in the flood is largely because they believe in Darwinian evolution. Because they believe that these animals are hundreds of millions of years old. And yet a vast majority of them exist on this earth today exactly as they exist in the fossil record. So you see what's happened is this giant hoax that's been perpetrated on mankind. The supposed summation of this incredible evidence that it all happened by chance. Richard Dawkins, prominent evolutionist, Speaking of the plant life during the Cambrian explosion. He said it's strange because we find so many of them already in an advanced state of evolution the very first time they appear. That's what we like to call double speak. As though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. And needless to say, this has creationists wringing their hands with joy. Amen. And you see, there isn't all this evidence that we've been here for millions and millions of years. There's evidence that there was a worldwide catastrophic event called the flood. That all of these animals that you and I look at today largely all came into existence at a very narrow, specific point in time, that if a catastrophic event like Mount St. Helens happened and there were animals there, they would be buried under a 100 feet or more of sediment and sand. Now imagine that on a global scale. Volcanoes erupting everywhere. You're splitting open, faulting tectonic plates crashing into one. God can do all that stuff instantaneously, by the way. He doesn't need long periods of time. He can say, look, I'm going to alter the way this evidence looks. And until about 20 years ago, there was a little bit of a hitch in this whole story because in the vertebrate phylum within the Cambrian period, it was believed that fish didn't quite fit into this scenario until those two fossil fish were actually found in China. So now that record is actually complete. 
So even the fish species are found now inside the, the Cambrian layer. So whether it's arachnids, which are spiders, or myropods, or almost any type of animal life, it looks like all of them got buried almost instantaneously in a single event. Because they all exist in that particular layer. And interestingly enough, Noah was told to take two of each kind onto the ark. And it appears that some point in time in what evolutionary geologists say was the distant past, they all existed on the earth at the same time. They didn't evolve one into another. To quote Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins, they apparently just appeared exactly as they are today. So family of God... Maybe you are one of those people that's skeptical about the flood record. I encourage you to be here. We'll kind of go through some of the bits and pieces of parts over the next couple of weeks. Show you some fossils that will boggle your mind. Trees growing through 350,000 years worth of the Earth's history. So I guess the roots were, you know, very old and the tree grew up through 350,000 years worth of rock or something. I don't know. But there's a lot of reasons to believe that God did exactly what he said he did. That he covered the earth by water and destroyed it in this flood. Amen. Let's stand. We'll pray together. I'm going to bring some pastors up front if you need prayer after service. Come on up. Love to pray with you. Worship team's going to come back up and lead us in a closing song. Use your minds. Think, read, question everything. Don't take for granted that just because somebody has two or three PhDs that they necessarily are giving you the truth. They might well just be giving you an atheistic view because they don't like the conclusion of what the truth actually leads them to when they look at the evidence. Father, thank you that you've given us minds to think with. Lord, thank you that the evidence that we see on this earth does in fact support that you covered the earth by water, that you, Jesus, said that that was the case. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. Here in the book of Genesis, we find this record. Lord, you intended us to believe and know uh, that you, in fact, did cover the earth. And you, you promised to never do it again, and we're grateful for that, God. We pray that you'd bless us with knowledge and understanding, help our faith to grow and be strong. Lord, we believe that you have given us some of these answers so that we would not be tempted to walk away from you because of something we hear in a science class. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for allowing us to engage our minds to think on these things. Thank you for these scientists that have done so much work. Lord, I thank you for Dr. Morris. Lord, all he's done before he left this earth, founding Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Wilder Smith, Lord, these men that shaped my worldview. Pray that you would bless us, use us. Lord, make us powerful for your purposes. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.